I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, everybody. My name is David Boris. And I'm Frankie C. And this is Everybody Everybody Sucks. Sucks, the podcast where we explore the struggles and triumphs of the journey from amateur to professional. People think that artists are born great at what they do. But the truth is, in the beginning... Everybody sucks. Today we have the wonderful and amazing Bobby Smith on the show. You see, Bobby Smith has been a Canadian recording artist since she was 10 years old. Her first single, Sweetwater, became a controversial track that stirred up many opinions of debates as to whether or not it was an appropriate song for such a young girl to be singing. Regardless, Bobby's career quickly took off as an era of young country was on the rise in the entertainment industry. Bobby continued to release music all through her teens as a successful indie artist with several single releases charting in the top 50, the top 40, and her highest charting song as a solo artist at number 22 on Canada's country charts. Today, Bobby is as busy as ever musically, continues to write and record country music with the amazing female vocal trio, The Heels, alongside Brittany Fiddler and Kyla Rollins. The Heels are a multi-award-winning country trio with past performances all over Canada, as well as Hallmark shows at the Bluebird Cafe, and none other than the Grand Ole Opry. Bobby Smith, welcome to the show. Thank you. So good to have you here. We haven't seen each other for a while. Yeah. So it's kind of nice to like, it's like, hey, how you doing? And then it's like, turn the record on, let's (laughs) get to work. (laughs) So funny. It's nice to have you on the show. And what we're really excited about here is that your journey is kind of an interesting, unique journey. I mean, it's pretty incredible. A lot of people don't get two lives in this industry and you have had two lives. We've had many lives, of course, but two of them (laughs) that I know really well. And so to kick off the top, when we're looking back, what made you fall in love with music in the first place? Growing up, my family always listened to country music. And I think CMT and the music videos really drew me to country music. I remember getting up and everyone would be asleep and the colored bars would still be on the TV. Do you remember? There oh wasn't TV gosh. all the time. Yes. Yeah. The You'd days. have to wait. Oh so. my gosh. Some of our <laughs> listeners are like, what? There was no TV on? I'm like, what? Frankie. What? Oh, wow. So I'm this is, this is definitely dated us. <laughs> there was a time where we would like wake up if you stayed up late and you'd like look at the TV and there'd be, there'd no, be nothing. no content. Just some colored bars. Oh my God. My mind is blown. <laughs> or colored lines. <laughs> so anyways, I would wake up and I would wait for CMT to come on. So what time I was getting up, I have no idea. And then my family would eventually get up and my mom would always try to put on something like Mr. Rogers or, you know, Fred Penner, something younger. And I just insisted that that's what I needed to watch. And then I started 
putting on concerts and things for family and friends and eventually entered a talent contest and then eventually met a man who was a producer and a songwriter and started working with him. And it kind of just kept progressing from there. Who was like some of the early country artists like Shania and stuff like that? Or who Um, who was really influencing you when you were a kid? When I was a kid, I loved Tanya Tucker, Reba McIntyre, Martina McBride, Trisha Yearwood. That was the time when like women were absolutely dominating country music. Like if you look at the charts, women were powerhouses. There was CDs called Female Country Heat and it was just women. So you're young and and you're in this talent contest. So who was the producer and person that sort of took you under the wings? Actually, my grandfather knew Soren from Studio Down Under. Soren Longquist. Yes. Oh, okay. And then he introduced us to a guy named Alan Roger who had Crosstown Studios in North Vancouver. Oh, okay. So I started going to Alan's because back when I recorded, nothing was digital. So it was all in those big tapes. So you had to sing a perfect pass front to back, and you just kept singing it over and over and over. And then we would go in and he would comb through it and say, I liked this, I liked that, and this is what we're going to go back in and we're going to aim for adding all of those things into one track. So I also went to singing lessons to practice exactly how he wanted me to do it. And it was a big undertaking. I think that's why albums took so long back yeah, then because totally. it wasn't just punch in and auto tune and you know timing could be corrected it was you had to sing it perfectly and i remember you'd be almost done and then you'd maybe come in a little late or hold something too long and then it was like stop and we're starting again <laughs> oh my gosh oh my the pressure yeah and and just so everyone knows you're 10 years old at this time yes so there was part of me that was super excited and then there's also a part of you that's like i just want to go and play at the playground with my friends. It's stuff that you would do as a 10-year-old. And then I was going there almost every day after school and just singing it over and over and over. And it was just really good to learn how to work in a studio, how to work with producers, how to take direction, how to not get discouraged. And so I think it was... It was a really cool way to enter the recording industry. I can't even imagine being 10 years old and having to sit in a vocal booth. I couldn't, like, I get nervous in a vocal booth now. Not that I'm in a vocal booth very often, but I would get really nervous now. I couldn't imagine being 10 years old and being like, stop, that's pretty good, but do it again, stop. And you're just like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I think when I started with my vocal teacher, which uh, happened before I started recording, She was very much like that. We would warm up on the piano together and focus on scales and breathing and proper projection. And then she would work with me on a song. And literally from the first breath, sometimes your first note, she would stop and go, nope, start again. You have to pre-sing it in your head before it comes out. And I remember being pretty frustrated sometimes when you think that you just did what she asked you. And then it's like, nope. And the tape stops and then it starts again. And that was the other thing. All my stuff at all my shows, I had a little bag of cassettes and I'd have to make sure they were all rewound and ready to go. And then my grandpa would put each one in like one at a time. And there'd be like some pauses sometimes where it was too long of an intro on the tape. And then I'd be standing there like, what do I talk about? Oh my gosh. (laughs) So it's just funny going through the different changes of the entertainment industry. Yeah. It's definitely a lot easier now. What were your parents like? You're like, okay, we're going to go record now. And your parents were like, great. Bobby's going to be a star. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it was around that time, this industry of uh, like young artists was was on the rise with Leanne Rimes, Adam Gregory, Lila McCann. There was all these young artists that the entertainment world seemed to gravitate to. And so it was like the perfect timing too. 
Okay, so the song that we have here is from those recording sessions, yes. correct? Yes. So when you went in, did you just have one song or was it like three songs or was it five songs or 10 songs or how was the project designed? Um, so Al had a CD that he first gave to me and it had a bunch of songs that he had written that he was pitching. And I don't know if you remember an artist, her name was Suzanne Gitsy. So she had done the demo vocals on them and she had some hits with some of them in the States as well. But this one in particular... I thought it was just a song about baseball, but my dad, he loved baseball and we always played baseball growing up. And so I guess that was the one that we all kind of enjoyed as a family. And so we thought, okay, we'll cut this song. And then I don't remember whose idea Little But Loud was, but there was one other song on that single and Al wrote it for me. And Al was dating or partners with Angela Kelman from Farmer's Daughter. And so mm-hmm. she did the demo for me because when he first demoed it, I was like, I can't sing this. This is a man song is what I told my mom, apparently. <laughs> and he's like, but I wrote it for you. It says it says your name in it and everything. And and I was like, no, I can't. I, I only sing female songs, <laughs> oh I guess, God. as this like young person. So then he had Angela sing it. And I was like, oh, okay, I can hear a girl singing it now. And so, <laughs> yeah, it was just funny. So we just did the one song and then we did Little Bit Loud. And from there, we did do more stuff. Like I've actually recorded several songs with him and others that we really released to radio. It was just, this was the this first, was sort of the, introduction the beginning. To it. Yeah. Should we do it? Yeah. I mean, I feel like we need to preface this by saying, you know, we ask people for their earliest, cringiest recording and you are a bit of an exception to that because your earliest recording, despite the fact that you were 10, is this studio recording that's done really well and yeah, produced right. really well. So here you are just completely disproving our theory. <laughs> But I think it's a good thing. Um, I think it's good to showcase that aspect of it. You know, maybe instead of saying embrace the suck, we can say embrace the controversy. Oh, yeah. There we go. I like that. Good call. So here is Sweetwater, embrace the controversy. I sound so nasally. I sound like I'm plugging my nose. But how cute. It's cute. Come on. And you're saying when I was just 18, but you're 10. (laughs) I know. That's another thing. Nowadays, we try to make everything so believable. They're like, we swear this isn't controversial. She's 18. Anyways. I always love that. I love that push. I love that part. At that age, were you like aware of the awesomeness that was going on behind you in this? I don't know. I, I mean, when you said everybody sucks, like clearly it took a lot of over and over and over of singing this song to make it sound like this. So, <laughs> who was playing the fiddle on it? Do you remember? I think it might have been like. There's this great, like, like he, this, and this is, defines your voice now. When Bobby sings, when she's into singing, she sings it, man. Like, you can hear this in this. Like, you like, you can just hear your face, like, just going all in. Right? It's funny because that's what Al, who the producer is, said. So my grandpa gave him a cassette of cover songs that I had recorded at this place over 
in Vancouver was called Power Plant, and they had this huge selection of karaoke tracks that you could choose from from this big wall, and then you could go into a vocal booth and put your voice on it. So that's what my very first one, I don't even know where that is, but that's what we gave to Al, and he said he had to pull over because he was just laughing so hard because he was like, I can't believe this little kid is singing all these love songs with so much conviction, Like, and I would just get into it. You know what's funny is I've gone back and sang some of those songs, like even from my album I did when I was, I think, 13 with Tony Rudner, and... It was like on stage that I was singing those old songs and realizing what I was even singing about. Wow. (laughs) Oh, man. That would be such a weird revelation. Yeah, this, I thought I was singing about baseball. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) You do sound that mature, though. I think as a listener, I would be thoroughly convinced that you were older. So you have to tell me, what was the controversy surrounding the song? Like, what were people getting up in arms about? So CBC had a whole afternoon call-in session where they played it and they had people calling in and saying, is this appropriate for someone this age to sing because of the sexual innuendos about first base, second base. And a lot of people had different opinions, but it kind of propelled it even further because it was getting more and more recognition. And it became the most requested song on JRFM, which nowadays I can't even get a song played on there. Yeah. Just for those who know, JRFM is like one of the major, major radio stations. It's a Vancouver-based country station. It's like one of the big dogs in Canada. Basically, my mom just took the CD down to JRFM, and they were like, who are you, or mom? And she was like, yeah, I am. (laughs) And then left it there, and I was like 10, and I'm like, hi, you know, meeting the person at the front desk. And then eventually they did ask for me to come in and do an interview, and then we realized, oh, there's other radio stations. And you would literally mail it, write a little handwritten letter in my 10-year-old girl writing, and then and put it in a little envelope and send it off. So nowadays you just upload it and it's done. But I remember tons of singles waiting in the lineup with my mom and we'd have big totes of all these envelopes all addressed to all the radio stations. Wow. (laughs) That's pretty fascinating. Like a DIY family sort of label almost kind of Mm -hmm. doing all the things. So when you recorded this and when this came out and despite the controversy, were you like, oh yeah, this is what I want to do. Totally. The man who at the time was booking for Merritt Mountain Fest heard it and he called and said, do you want to play at Mountain Fest? And I'm like, okay. And up until then I'd played maybe at little community things or at church or, you know, at a talent show. So yeah, we opened up the Merritt Mountain Fest. He wanted me to do O Canada and then play a few songs when they were switching over some bands and things and come out with him and like introduce acts and such. And then it ended up that Marty Stewart couldn't make it. And I was still there. I guess we stayed the weekend in our motorhome. I don't know. And then they said, would you want to have a Saturday night spot opening for Travis Tritt? And I was like, of course. Wow. So So you're 10 years old. (laughs) I think I was 11. 11. Okay. You're 11 years old. You're one year into your journey. And you are now opening for Travis Tritt on Saturday night. And for those who don't know, the Marymount Music Festival used to be one of the largest country festivals in North America. You know, now you have like Boots and Hearts and all Sunfest and all this other stuff. And then like all these like chain festivals, right? You have like 10 or 15 ones that are all this. Yeah, Country Thunder. Long before that stuff, there was this thing called Marymount Music Festival. And at one point it even got into like Rolling Stone magazine and Mm -hmm. all these magazines is like the craziest country music party in North America. That was insane. Yeah. And those were the days when it was absolutely insane. That was another thing. People were like, I can't believe you would take your 11-year-old child there. And my mom was like, well, I don't know. She wants to sing. So this is wild. Like this is like a crash course in becoming a professional Mm -hmm. performing artist. Mm -hmm. And yet you're also still a kid. 
What happens next? Are then people coming to you and saying, I want to manage you? Are there label discussions? How does the industry start to like embrace you a little bit? I eventually did get a manager. He was based out of Seattle. Can't even remember how that all started. But I did have, like when I was 15, someone gave my second CD. It was someone that made my merchandise, gave it to someone that they knew, who gave it to someone that they knew. And, mm. and all of a sudden, RCA Records is phoning our house and saying, would you want to fly down to Nashville and meet Joe Galante? And they mm. flew me there. And my meeting was the morning of September 11th. So I woke up and I'm getting ready with my mom and we turned the TV on. And then there's all of this with the towers. And oh it was insane. So I feel like we've had lots of ups and downs through the career that I had uh, before the heels. And it was all weird things like that, like where something was so great set up and then it would just be done, like for some kind of tragedy. Like that's that's only one thing, but there's like several others. That's crazy. So the day you were going to meet for the label is 9-11. Yes. So then they did meet with me days later and they just said, we are so in shock. We don't really know what's going on. We're not really in the position to sign a new artist right now, but thank you for coming and singing for us. And so I'm like, okay, Man. and went home. How do you handle that kind of rejection as a young kid? Because it was sort of out of our control, it was okay, but it was sad. Like you would get your hopes up all the time. And I've said that to the girls in the band that I'm with now. It's so much easier being in a group to go through all the ups and downs because you have people to be with during those moments when things don't go as you wanted. There's been moments in my solo career where I was like, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And then something else happens or somebody asks you to play a show and then the ball starts rolling again and then you get pulled right back in and you get all your hopes and, and then something else goes, you know? So it's just this big up and down. And I think as an artist, you just have to be prepared for that because how many artists do we know and love? And it's just one single that we know of them. So it, you kind of have to just embrace it all. From yeah. the suck to the controversy <laughs> to the yeah. good. So you're 15 years old. You've had your second album come out, right? Mm -hmm. How many albums did you, in your kind of solo career, how many albums did you end up releasing? Um, I did three. And then I did some singles and stuff in between. Uh, so when were you kind of felt that you were like peaking? Was that 15, 16 in terms of like songs, like getting charts, like song yeah. momentum and stuff? I'd say 15, 16. We were in Nashville when... Always on My Way came out, and mm -hmm. that was when I was 16. And I remember we got a call from my radio tracker, and he was like, your song has the bullet, which means it's the fastest rising song on the chart. It's the most added. And that was one that went to number 22. And mm -hmm. it was written by Lisa Brokop. I got to tour with her and open for her. And we were playing big stages, like at Stampede. And we were down in Nashville recording. I was working with Miller of Sawyer Brown him oh, and, wow. and his producer, Brian Tankersley, and they were producing Faith Hill, Where Are You Christmas? And like all these cool artists. And so I went down there and I did some some demo work with them. And then they were going to shop it at a label. And yeah, all these things that you're like, well, that just sounds perfect. It's all going to work out. And then it was like, mm, somebody had a falling out and it didn't properly get presented at the label, but thanks for coming. Well, <laughs> as a teenage, a young teenage woman, a young teenage girl or whatever. What was that like? You're going to high school and you're... Oh, that was rough. <laughs> oh, could, could you expand on that? Because you're super popular musically and then you have to go to school and be yeah. like a teenage girl and everyone knows that high school is vicious. Yes, and it was. Right? And every time something good happened, it was like the most terrifying Monday to go back to school because you were like, oh no, everyone's going to have either saw that article or maybe they saw that 
thing I did on TV and people would like to, you know, yell things at me as I was going down the hall to my locker. Like, where's your security guard? Or don't rock the jukebox. And just like (laughs) people and also country music at the time wasn't cool, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people wanted to make fun of me that I sang country music. And it was like this... I don't know. It was just so much anxiety to go to school. Like, and I, and I almost didn't want anyone to know. And and that was another thing. As a solo artist, you need to promote yourself as an artist. But that was so hard for me because I also received so much negative attention from it. So, like when I would go places, you know, my parents—they're so proud. My dad, you could come to the door to sell chocolate bars or get a petition signed, and he's inviting you in the house to listen to my music. <laughs> so like everywhere we go, my dad's like, "Oh, my daughter's a." singer. Bobby, sing for them. Do you want to sing for them? And I'm like, no, I definitely don't. (laughs) So yeah, school was really hard. And I still found like a great group of friends. And my brother, he wound up in the entertainment industry as well in acting. So for a while, we were kind of out of school and living other places. But then again, I'd come back and I was like, oh, no, here we go. I I guess it's no surprise, though, right? Because we know we're all teenagers and teenagers can be kind of vicious. And especially if you're doing something that is so different Mm -hmm. and you're having success at it and the natural inclination of young kids is they don't understand it they they mock it they make fun of it and And that's what my mom used to say you know they're just jealous of you or they and it's so hard to grasp that at Mm -hmm. a as a young age you know you're like why 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 are they mean to me though you know i think by the time i graduated things had changed a little bit i'd found a group of friends and i think grade 11 and 12 Maybe I just started partying and things, but it was more fun. But when I was younger, it was definitely harder. I think maybe by grade 11 and 12, I started not caring as much what people thought. Right. I was just like, all right, whatever. With your relationship with Nashville, as you started going down there, were you going there just because people were like, you have to go there, Bobby? Mm-hmm. Or did you? You're, OK, so fair <laughs> enough. And But then personally, was there any sort of connection that you were making with the city yourself? I mean, my manager was from Seattle, so we did spend a lot of time in the States. And I think that when you're a Canadian artist, there's this unspoken, you know, you got to go to Nashville. That's where you make it. Those are where all the opportunities are. Mm -hmm. And so we definitely went there. And the funny thing was, is I wasn't even a songwriter at the time. I definitely wrote songs alone in my bedroom, but I would never show anyone. I was terrified of that. So it wasn't until I was, I think, maybe 23 that I started writing with other people and sharing my music. So most of the trips to Nashville were just to record outside cuts. Yeah. Who was collecting the songs for you? Like who was out there kind of getting them? Was your manager? Yeah. My manager also, my mom and we would take different pitches from different producers that we were working with so they would always have a collection of songs that they had written but then also songs that uh, had been pitched to them so that's how like lisa broke up ends up writing a song for your biggest charter yeah so that one was because i was recording with tom mckillop and then she was also recording with tom mckillop and she started cutting that song and and then after they were putting her album together she was like i love this song but i don't feel like it's the greatest fit for me And then he was like, well, we could pitch it and I have some other artists that I'm working with. And then I listened to it and I loved it. So we just went from there. You have these albums out and you're having singles and you're having charting success. So this is like you're on your way. And then you stop. Mm -hmm. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What happened? I think it was just a combination of graduating and wanting to do other things. Like I wanted to spend time with friends. I wanted to travel like friends were doing. And then also, I think there's a lot of people that try to tell you, well, what's your real job? Well, what are you going to do as your backup plan? Well, what if that doesn't work out? And you start to doubt yourself and, and then your mindset starts changing. And I think when you have all these ups and downs to stay in full commitment to belief in yourself can get harder and harder. And especially the longer that it takes, like you're now I'm however many years in and you just start to think, well, maybe, maybe that was it. Maybe I'm going to do something else now. So then I did start looking at other things that were paid money, you know, and (laughs) it's not this industry. (laughs) No. And you need money when you're, especially when you're young, you know, you're, you want to save up and get a car and you want to do this and that. And, and so I just started working all the time and not even like career. I mean, eventually it turned into a career role for me, but I just kind of got busy with life, I guess. Was it just like, I'm done? I think so. It was sort of, I think a combination of the fact that there's just like so much commitment when you're doing the music and practicing and and the shows. And I just kind of was like, oh, I'm 19. I want to go to the bar. I want to hang out with friends and have a boyfriend and move out with that boyfriend. And, you know, all this stuff that my dad was like, I don't want you to do that. I want you to do this. I want you to keep singing. And then that kind of, I, I guess maybe there was something that even then made me want to sort of go against that more, yeah, sure. you know, because it was like I wanted my own control in my life. And so then I did. I moved out when I was around 19, I guess, and uh, started living with a guy. And I think I was coming to the end of that relationship. And I had so many different emotions about how to end it and what to do. And and then I started writing again. Like I remember having this like emotional breakdown and just asking God, what do I do? What do I do? And then I started writing songs and lyrics. And then finally I was like, okay, I need to show my songs to someone. Like I need to get back into singing. I just had this desire to do it. And so then I did. And I remember like going to the meeting where I was going to show the producer my songs. And I literally, first I had to sit in the car and be like, on the count of three, you're going to get out of the car. And then one, two, three, nope. <laughs> and, then, oh and then I went up, like I remember going to the door and turning back and being like, no, we can't do this. We'll just, we'll just message. No, I can't. I'm, I'm not doing it. Like it was this whole internal struggle. Wow. <laughs> but then I did it. <laughs> scary. Who was that producer? That was Tony Redner. And we ended up doing a four or five song EP together. And I just kind of showed him all the different stuff that I've been working on. It was funny because, do you know the album, Alison Krauss and Robert Plant, Raising Sand? Or, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Love that album. And that's what I was really listening to when I was writing at that time. So then I play him my songs and he's like, these are great. Like, And he starts playing along with his guitar as I'm singing because that's another thing. I don't play an instrument. So I usually will find melodies and lyrics all without an instrument. And I I found that he was just able to replicate exactly what the guitar sounded like in my head. And then he gets up and he goes, 
I've been listening to this album, and what would you think about making an album that's kind of inspired by this? And he played that album of Allison and Roberts, and I was like, what? So it all just seemed really serendipitous. And then we went from there, and we started combing through the songs and writing them together. And then we ended up recording those at his studio. And I think I put that out when I was 24, again, just independently. But we did go to radio with the title track on that album. And it did okay. Did you feel in the aftermath of your breakup, this experience, the writing and the recording, was it therapeutic? Did you feel like you had settled into some sort of universal niche that you kind of were missing for a bit? Oh, for sure. And I think it just sort of brought me back to living my life with a purpose. I kind of was just working at this job that I didn't really love. Having that outlet was just something else in my life that made me feel like I was doing something that was more important. It definitely wasn't anything that had enough of a team behind it to keep it going. Because even at that time, people still were treating my career like it was a hobby. And that's kind of hard, too, you know. So I kind of got caught up in work for a while. And then I started managing a store in Lower Lonsdale that was a block up from this cafe. And it's owned by the girl that I'm in the band with now. That's a whole other interesting story. Yeah, look, because we need to hear this story. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we have Bobby Smith as the young girl, teenager artist. Mm -hmm. Then that sort of drops off at 19, maybe a yeah. little bit of soul searching, as everyone does out of high school, right? Yeah. And then this relationship falls apart, and then songwriting becomes this incredible therapeutic aspect mm -hmm. of how to get over that and your re-engagement with music. Yeah. Then that attempt quickly fades as you get caught up in work, as we all do. And you, mm -hmm. you're like, well, maybe this is just whatever. And where I'm getting with this is that the story of the Heels meeting is so very serendipitous. And I know that the Heels, all three of the ladies are very big in like universal signs and the universe provides when it needs to, right? Yeah. Okay. Manifesting, manifesting, and looking yeah. for good signs. Exactly. Yeah. They and, and and these ladies uh, are fantastic at it. And writing with them <laughs> is always such a pleasure because they're just so positive in everything they do. So this story of you meeting these ladies. So are you not thinking of music at this point now? No. There was a woman that I worked with, and she would always try to get me to sing for different customers in the store, or she would encourage me to try to get back into singing. Or if someone said they were a musician, she then would instantly start telling them about me. And even at that time, I remember there was a point where I decided from from then on, I was not going to say what my career job was. Like when people say, what do you do? And I was just going to say I was a singer. I was just going to say I was a writer. But that friend, she ended up going through a divorce and her mom brought her this book and it was called The Year of Yes. And she was like, well, I don't know if I'm going to read this, but basically what it is is if we say yes to every opportunity, our life is supposed to drastically improve. So as a supportive friend, I was like, okay, I'll do that with you. Sure. Like, I don't know what I thought I was going to do. But the next day on our year of yes, we're there at work and I'm opening up my messages and I get this message from Kyla and she says, hey, me and Brittany are in a trio and her sister's leaving the band and we really want to stay a three-part harmony trio. And we wondered if you would join the band with us. And I read it out loud because Kyla was a customer of ours. She would come and buy stage makeup at night sometimes after her cafe was closed. So I said, oh, Kyla's messaging me, reading it out to my friend, thinking that maybe she wanted some products or something. We sold makeup. I don't know if I said that. We had a makeup store. And so then my friend's like, well, you have to say yes because of our year of yes. And I was like, that's a huge commitment. You don't even know what being in a band or being a music artist is. It's an emotional commitment. And I have this career and I manage this store and all these staff and I can't even get 
out of the door when my eight-hour shift is supposed to be over, let alone have some other kind of career happening in the evening after work. And so she's like, no, you have to say yes. So I typed yes. <laughs> That's all I typed. <laughs> yes. And then Kyla's like, wow, okay, yay. Like, let's get together. Like, And even at that time, I was still thinking maybe I can get out of this in some way. Like, maybe I'll go there and I could convince the girl that doesn't want to be in the band that music is amazing and you should just keep going because it'll be the best thing for you. And so I went there and Georgia, that's Brittany's sister who wanted to leave the band, she was there. And I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't coming in and stepping on anyone's toes. And I wanted to make sure that she fully understood what she was doing. And and then I also thought maybe I should sing with these girls. We should see how our voices sound together. And so they had a song. It was Weekend Country that oh. they wrote with you. Oh, nice. And they yeah. played that for me. And uh, I was like, okay, this is cool. And then we started kind of singing together. And then Georgia talked about how she didn't want to be in the band anymore. And they were like, okay, well, we've got a show in six days. So if you could learn all these songs and this is the set. And at that time, I'd never even harmonized. And they were like, well, we're very fair. So, you know, on this song, this is the melody on that verse. And then you're going to go to the low harmony. And then on the chorus, you're going to jump up here. And I was like, what? And so I went to the School of Harmonies from Kyla and Brittany. And <laughs> in six days, meeting at the cafe when it was closed, we did our first show at Gabby's. And I think we did like a six or seven song set. And we did it. <laughs> okay. That, oh my wow. gosh. That like the day after you embrace the year of yes, <laughs> yeah. the biggest yes of your life, basically. Yeah. Like one of the biggest yeses yeah. you'll probably ever say in your life. Talk about a left turn. Yeah, completely. And that was um, in May, I believe. Like I remember it was right before my birthday. And I think that summer, it started to really take off and we were playing lots of shows. And then because the shows were on the weekends, my store was really busy on Saturdays. And I really felt that I was very much all in at that store. That's why I couldn't even leave after an eight-hour shift. And so then I was like, I'm either going to be all in with this band or I'm going to be all in with this store or I'm going to be kind of half in with the band and still all in with the store. And I just felt like the entertainment industry kind of gives you a window. And I was like, what do you do? And I quit my job in the summer. And I'd been at that career for, I think, like 13 years. Isn't it funny how you have to say no to some things to say yes to others? Yes. But I was so happy I did it. And actually, because we still needed some part-time money, Brittany was working for Kyla at the time. And then I went and worked there and we'd open the cafe and we'd be like washing kale and singing our parts and practicing. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. <laughs> it's adorable. Uh, really freaking adorable, actually. <laughs> and I and you can just picture it the way these girls interact. They have a great relationship. So you have to admit, you dove right back in. Like I did. You, like that was rapid. Yeah. And then we started recording right away. Our first song that we wrote together was with you. We wrote Bet You a Beer. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah nice. Yeah. And that yeah. was the first one that you all three wrote together. I think so. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's uh, incredible. I, Frankie, as you can probably tell, I've been very lucky to be around for the journey for Heels, which has been a, a real treat in my career, just being able to work with these women and to see how they've developed. And what's really fascinating about the Heels is they have developed, not just in working together, but you guys have really embraced a really interesting angle on how you present yourselves. You guys are very commercial, but you're also very much yourselves. Um, you're almost like radically independent in terms of who you are and the messages you want to say, even the vibe and the energy and even the tone of how you say stuff. Maybe you could expand a little more on this for people listening. Like, how did you kind of come to this 
point where the heels are just a trio that still creates these wonderful, wonderful songs, but also has a very sort of clear direction that you guys are going in sort of spiritually and stuff. I think we all recognize the same little girl that always wanted this in each other. So I think we all have that same story. We've all been solo artists. We've all had these ups and downs. We've all been told it wasn't going to happen for us. Um, And so I think when we came together, we were at a point where music was something that we loved, but it wasn't something that was full time. And we'd been in and out of being fully committed. And then when we got together, everyone was going through some different things. Everyone had different parts of their life that they felt kind of sucked. And music was what really made us feel better. And so the term, the heels, it's spelled like shoes, but it's about how music is healing. So originally it was spelled H-E-A-L-S, but everybody spelled it wrong. And then this was sassier with high heels. And so um, it was changed to be spelled like the shoes. But that's what really brought us together. And we just felt like we wanted to make music that made us feel good from the lyrics to the sound to what we were saying. And we called the first album Love Heels, Love Comma Heels. We wrote every song together on there. And basically the love that we had for music and then the love that we had together as a sisterhood that we found was so healing, empowering it. We just looked at each other and we're like, we're going to do this. Like, we're really going to do this. And like, I get emotional (laughs) just talking about that because it was so big for us, I think. And it still is. Full Mm -hmm. body chills, head to toe. Um, Because music is so healing. I mean, it really is. And the fact that it brought you together and then you were able to kind of heal each other but then also share that really really powerful Mm -hmm. and we've been through some stuff together um just like everyone's lives emotionally and then and then how we've sort of helped lift each other up through all of that together and and the funny thing our first show when we went to that little first show we all realized that we were all living on the same road that was another weird you know serendipitous thing we decided to carpool and we were all on the same first street um and we were within blocks of each other and and like most people when you're in a band you've been friends for years or something and then you're like let's form a band but we didn't even know each other like we started traveling and going to you know driving from vancouver 16 hours to go to calgary to play on a free stage that we volunteered to play on and we don't like and like traveling with people you always kind of start learning how people work and then you're sharing a hotel room because you don't make any money so everyone's in one room together and yeah we really got to know each other quick so it's pretty clear that you three have not just like formed this great project but you've bonded and it it sounds like all three of you have sort of been there for each other you know like sisters i mean it almost feels like that doesn't it yeah and where you guys are at now so you guys have done some pretty incredible things but i think one of the things that i was always most impressed with was your performance at the grand old opry yes that was very cool is that is that a highlight for you right now Oh, for sure. That's something that has been on our vision board forever. And we will use like the crafty tools of like Photoshop to Photoshop ourselves into certain pictures, like the artist entrance stage at the Grand Ole Opry. We have vision boards. We put things on our computer as our screensaver. So that one was there for a while. And it's funny how when you're manifesting They tell you don't be too specific with how you want to get to that goal because it could come from anything. And so one day we were just on Instagram and we got a message in our inbox from the Josie Music Awards that said, you're nominated for Group of the Year. And we were like, wow that's amazing. You need to look into what this music award association is. And we're really grateful. And then we look and then it it says that the award show is at the Grand Ole Opry. And I'm like, are we reading this correctly? So then I'm like, 
let's ask them if we can sing there. So I'm just right away, can we perform at this award show? And they're like, we would love that. And we were like, what? And so it still didn't feel real for so long. You know, when something great happens and you start to doubt it, you know, like you start to think of ways that it might not happen. But we were like, nope, this is happening. This is happening. Even up until the day, like it was insane. As this young girl who always dreamed of being on that stage, like it's still crazy to me that that happened. And then we won. That was insane too, because I already felt like we won just going there. Oh my gosh. And you got nominated again. Yeah. I was going to say, now you have the real photo next yes. to the photoshopped photo. Yeah. What's the future going to look like for the heels now? What's coming up next, do you think? For us, we would love to just keep traveling and seeing the world and meeting people and playing our music. So this summer, we're going to play a bunch of shows through Texas. So, and then we're going to go to Florida and play there. A bunch of shows in Tennessee. So we just love being together, being on the road and. We'd love to do the whole tour bus dream and open for major label artists and play big stadiums and, yeah, just kind of keep elevating. We always Mm -hmm. just want to get better. I have no doubt that you guys will make all those things happen, and I'm excited to see it. Thank you. Me too. It does. (laughs) The big question is if you could give yourself, young 10-year-old Bobby, three pieces of advice that you now know, what would those three pieces of advice be? Well, as cheesy as it sounds, I would say never stop believing in yourself. There definitely was a time when I was young, probably before high school ruined (laughs) all those feelings. But you know, when you're young and you're just so convinced of things. So yeah, all all my projects in school, remember when they would ask you to write like, where I see myself in 10 years, where I see all of them were like, I'll be on my tour bus and I'm going to, you know, I was fully committed to the vision. And then I think as life goes on and then as, you know, things don't always work out, you start to lose that that really like complete belief in yourself and your dreams. But I would say keep believing in yourself because it's so true. Just that belief and that vibration of it working out is what brings it. I think also I would say that music is a real job. If you treat it like Mm. a real job, it is a real job because I think that there's so many people that will tell you that it is a hobby and it's, it's sad for artists. I feel like that's in all types of, of, artistic careers people will be like but what are you going to do for money or what's your real what's your backup plan if that doesn't work out so I think I would tell myself that it is a real job if you treat it like a real job and I feel like when I came together with the heels because we had all been working these careers we'd kind of been managing businesses and we developed a business mindset and we thought okay now we know how to do that we also love singing and we know how to do that so we just have to put these two things together and then like come at this from the business side of things which I think a lot of artists they will maybe just let that whole business side of things get managed by a team. Whereas for us, we've really taken it as we call it DIY fame. And we just do everything ourselves until we find a team member that approaches us and says they want to be a part of this. So that was some advice that we got. And then I guess I would just, I would say write. I would tell myself to write more. It's not scary and that you're going to love it more than singing. (laughs) That's fantastic. Is there anything that you wanted to say about the process of writing this song that you brought for us? Yeah. This song is part of an album. We've actually been quite scared to release it because I think we've definitely had big opinions about love and, you know, standing up for your self-worth and things like that in our songs in terms of relationships. But maybe we haven't been so political with our our lyrics. And so we've kind of sat with this one for a little longer than we normally do. 
but we're really excited about it. It's a powerful song. It's still fun. It sounds like you're having a great time. And true to our healing name, we have put healing frequencies underneath every single track on this upcoming album. Even this song, which is an upbeat fun country jam. There's healing frequencies. So you're doing yourself a favor. You're healing yourself while you listen. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. I love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Yeah. Thank you yeah, thank for you, allowing Bobby. me. It was awesome. Yeah. Thanks. And for those out there in podcast land, I'm David Boris. And I'm Frankie C. And remember, everybody, everybody sucks. This is John Wayne by The Heels. Too long Kept calm and watched it all go wrong Right now they want me scared to death Cause no one knows what happens next Hot-tailing out of here Won't get me anywhere Courage is facing fear Yesterday